0: Hello, and welcome to The Net OGs, an original podcast series brought to you by Duration Media. I'm your host, Andy Badkin. This series asks and answers the question, what was the internet like before the internet was a thing, and who were the original players? Each week, I'll be joined by an OG, not an old guy or gal, but the true original gangsters of the internet. Grab a drink, sit back and learn, how the largest medium in the world was built, and listen to never before heard stories from some of the visionaries that formed the first internet media companies and digital ad agencies. On today's premiere episode, I'm speaking with Rashad Tabakawala. Rashad is a speaker and author of the book, Restoring the Soul of Business, staying human in the age of data, and an advisor for the publicist group, which he's been with for 38 years we will be starting our discussion with his time building one of the first digital ad agencies, the Interactive Marketing Group at Leo Burnett, and his ascent into a highly respected digital media influencer and strategist. Welcome, Rashad.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. And uh, all I can tell you is you knew me then and we know each other now.
0: (laughs) We are the original gangsters, the OGs. It's perfect. Absolutely. So, Rashad, before we get started, uh, I want to toast you. You were the inspiration uh, for this podcast, The Net OGs. You may remember the last time we met was in February. We were having a beer and discussing old times. We shared a lot of early stories. And then you posted something on Facebook about Andy Batkin being an OG and referring to Terry Kwasia for some reason. We're not sure. Uh, But I want to thank you for sharing those stories and uh, for uh, being our first Net OG on this podcast.
1: Well, it's a pleasure and honor to be with you. And I'm glad that if I get someone to have enough beers, I get invited to their original <laughs> podcast.
0: <laughs> well, let's get into it. Um, how, how did you get involved in the internet? You were uh, an account executive, you were account supervisor at a traditional agency how did you actually become the one that founded the interactive marketing group at Leo Burnett? The bridge from where I was to the
1: internet marketing group involved cat food and literally it was cat food. So I was an account supervisor on Heinz pet products and the president of Heinz decided he no longer believed in mass media advertising. As a result, I moved and started learning about direct marketing. And at Leo Burnett, we had a direct marketing group because Leo Burnett, at that time, and continues to handle what is now known as Altria, but at that time was Philip Morris in the United States, which was Marlboro. And very quickly, because of the laws on advertising, including print and outdoor, um, Altria would have to become a direct marketing oriented brand. So we had developed those capabilities and I went to learn direct marketing from the Leo Burnett Direct Marketing Group to use it on cat food because this particular cat food brand called Amore was only bought by two and a half percent of the US population. So our client basically said, why am I advertising to a hundred percent when I'm only trying to reach two and a half percent? When I was in the direct marketing group, I quickly discovered using my undergraduate degree in math and a little bit of other stuff, <laughs> that it was cheaper to actually advertise to hundred percent on television than to reach the two and a half percent through direct marketing. And that got me wondering why, because it made no sense that I had to actually spend hundred percent to reach everybody and that was more cost-effective than reaching the two and a half percent. And the reason was because I had to A, find those two and a half percent by buying their names from Cat Fancy and other magazines. I then had to pay for postage to reach them. I had to buy paper and a whole bunch of other stuff. So by the time it was done, it was more cost-effective to do something else. And I scratched my head and I said, but what if I don't have to buy the postage? And what if I don't have to buy any of these other things? And that's how I discovered America Online. And I went to our group and said, I think there's a new form of marketing coming and it's called interactive marketing. And at that time, once the cat food adventure was over, Time Warner was launching the Orlando full service test, interactive television and McDonald's wanted to do that. And I said, I think I know how to help them. See, there is a demand. So we launched the interactive marketing group with McDonald's as our client and the interactive marketing group was me and another gentleman. And that was it.
0: Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating. So, um, so you call it the Interactive Marketing Group and you realize that there was something happening. Who, who was the other person, your your associate, do you remember?
1: It was a gentleman by the name of Dick Tillinghast, who was an mm-hmm. assistant account executive, who was interested because most people thought that I had lost my mind, right? <laughs> Including many of my colleagues who basically said, you have a team, big budgets and clients, and now you're basically sitting down in this crazy thing that sounds weird and it doesn't include television shooting, going out to LA, it doesn't include any power. (laughs) What are you doing? And I said, I don't know, I think this might be interesting. And that's how we basically started. And uh, in very short order, I then went to McDonald's and told them to leave the Time Warner Orlando test, saying it was not going to work. Mm -hmm. That the two things that they wanted to learn was really about two-way interactivity and about rich multimedia content, and they could learn about it separately. So I took them down to McLean, Virginia, to meet a company which had 300,000 subscribers at that time called AOL. And I took them to a company in Sausalito, California, called Broderbund, which is about to come out with something called Arthur's Teacher's Trouble. And I said, we learn separately, and one day those two things will come together. Hmm. And The first advertiser non-software in the history of AOL was McDonald's. And we took them there.
0: That's amazing. I I remember uh, the FSN thing was, um, the joke was they only had two problems, hardware and software, right? Yes. (laughs) And the way, by
1: the way, I discovered it is I went down to Orlando and I said, can I see your equipment? And they showed it to me. And I looked at it and it was two sun servers. And I said, are you going to put two sun servers in everybody's home? They said, no, this is going to become smaller. I said, like, how and when? And that's when I went to McDonald's and said, get out of this. This is not going to happen.
0: Okay. So you, you, you have a, you're in a, let's call it a stodgy old agency. Interactive is not even a term. So you created the interactive marketing group. When When did and how did you pitch it to upper management that this was something that really needed some some financing and, and that there was a real opportunity for your clients?
1: There were two reasons I managed to do this. The first, there were two steps in it. The first reason they asked me and gave me permission to start the Interactive Marketing Group is I had been involved in a pitch that we did not win, but we made the right recommendation which was a pitch for IBM and in that particular process they began to realize this was 1994-1995 that computing was going to be very big and I said the Leo Burnett company all of our clients are fixated on the stomach we have clients who basically are food clients or they're fixated on the body like you know deodorants etc in the future the value will be created to the companies that feed the mind like IBM and others. So we need to be prepared for that. So that was one way I did it, which was interesting to them. Um, But the second thing that I did, which was even more interesting, though it required a bunch of uh, both storytelling and luck, and also a lot of support from senior management, was I convinced them to take the name off the door I convinced them that the Leo Interactive Marketing Group should be closed down. And we should basically leave the building. And I should basically partner with a two-person company called Giant Step Productions. And we build a completely different culture, a completely different talent base, and operate outside the building and call it Giant Step and not Leo Interactive Marketing Group. And they got convinced because A, it made it, it made our economics much better. I didn't have all the economics of the old company, I had new economics. But for me and for everybody else, why it was very important is we looked credible against organic, agency.com, CKS, and other companies that were specialists. And those were the two things that we did. And as a result, we ended up launching Giant Step, so Leominster Interactive became Giant Step. We moved to Greektown in Chicago, which I still drive by, you know, our 820 mm-hmm. West Jackson Place in a loft, and we there uh, started putting the first companies on the World Wide Web. We put United on the World Wide Web. We had a server room, right? We we had in the early days. We had people like Sergey Brin and. You know various other people walking into the company. Uh, this was late '90s.
0: So, ha- what what was the evolution? I understand now why you created giants. That made sense. So, so, did did publicists invest a bunch of money in that, or did you go raise money from somebody else? No. So the way
1: the, the, the way the way we did the Giants, So mm-hmm. at, at that time there was no publicists. It was simply Leo Burnett, the company. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, publicists were around, but Leo Burnett was not. Because publicists was a French company. Leo Burnett was Leo Burnett was privately held. Right. Leo Burnett basically, the reason they liked the model is I created a model with my colleagues uh, Adam and Eric Hennigan, that basically was going to break even within eighteen months. And so we just said, give us enough money to basically buy some servers, make sure that you basically underwrite the rent, which we will eventually pay you for, and off we go. And because our cost structure was so low, but more importantly, this was the big thing. We had a we had amazing talent with a different economic model, but we insisted on charging all of our clients. When agencies start something new, clients expect that innovation for free. Because this was a separate company, I got all the Leo had business but I could refuse to accept it unless they paid me.
0: Like shooting fish in a barrel, right? (laughs)
1: And that was where the economic model made sense, which is I had a major company sending me business, but they also had to send me revenue. And if their client basically said, we want you to do it for free, they said, no, we don't do it for free. And the client basically, if they had to go anywhere else, they would have to go to agency organic or CKS or Motor Media. And I could un- undercut them if that's where they wanted to go, so that's how we actually could eventually build this this operation. So it was a operation, both a financial operation and a credibility organization, and that company very quickly went from three employees. When I stopped working there, uh, we were 175 three and a half years later, and by the way, we were profitable. So we weren't unlike organic and agency and all these that were being trying to be funded for pre-IPOs and you know they went up and down, we yeah. were actually profitable. And the big insight I also had at that time, I don't know if it's insight or luck, that <laughs> I began to understand that most of these other companies, clients were basically dot-coms. And my thing was, I don't believe these dot-coms will succeed. So I don't want any dot-com clients. So when the dot-com bust came, we had no layoffs because we had Kellogg's and United Airlines and a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of other people. And at that stage, I would go to our clients and I show them one graph. And this graph kept us in business for a long time. And the graph was, let me show you the NASDAQ index. So the NASDAQ index, if you remember, goes up to 5,000 and then comes crashing down. So I said, that's not what I want you to pay attention to. I basically showed them the number of people who were going online
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the increased speed of quote unquote broadband, you know, the broadband was coming. And I said, I want you to pay attention to this. This is real. This doesn't affect you and me unless we've invested in, you know, whatever crazy C- CGI and other companies that were existing at that time. Okay. And so these traditional clients who had the money followed the consumer. And that graph convinced everybody that the dot-com bust was a financial thing that did not actually impact these companies and they needed to continue to
0: invest. Right, you convinced them to follow the eyeballs. Yeah. Which, so that never changed. It never so, changed. So you, so you build this team in the beginning in you know, 94, 95, 96.
1: It, all the way 97, to 97,
0: 98, yeah. Where, where did... Where did you find individuals who, of course, had no experience uh, to come work for you? Did you have to pitch them? Did you have to and what kind of people did you look for?
1: So there were three, there were three, three sets of people. The first is, remember, uh, we, I had two colleagues, uh, Adam and Eric, who are in my book and still very good friends of mine, who basically were amazingly talented, uh, both artists, coders and business people between the th- all they had those those two. So they managed to attract people and we were the only game in Chicago. We were the only game in the Midwest. So anybody who wanted to work in digital, if they didn't want to go to San Francisco or New York, we could get them, that was number one. The other is a lot of people inside Leo Bennett, up and coming talent said, wait, we want to do this. So we could have our pick of the very best people. and. I always believe, and this I've learned later. I mean, I've heard him. You know, Tony Toby Lutke of Spotify, uh, of Shopify, not Spotify, of Shopify. He basically explains one of the reasons why Shopify does so well is because he built it in Ottawa. He doesn't have to compete for Silicon Valley, Seattle, and other talent, right? And we were the game. So if you and that became a major edge in us, us getting people.
0: Yeah, I'm sure as you got into 95, 96, when, you know, the IPO boom, you know, Yahoo and 2470 media, et but cetera, then it was a marketing thing, right? So
1: it, it and people knew. And then when the dot-com bust came, we didn't have to worry about that either. So that that turned out to be good.
0: So you, you talked about McDonald's um, and the fact that you had a stable of all these different brands. Uh, tell us a story of what the early pitches were like. And how did the advertisers react? I mean, I, I know in the beginning for me, it was, I want to know how it works. I mean, to me, it was it was a crazy question because they never asked how TV worked.
1: Right. But I'd love to hear th- some stories. So there were two things. One is one or two, like in, there was a gentleman at, at McDonald's there called David Green, who was very, very sophisticated. He wanted to know how it worked, but he told everybody else, you all don't need to know how it works. I'll mm-hmm. figure it out. Okay. <laughs> you just focus on how it's going to be good for the customer or consumer. Now remember, prior to me launching all of these things, what was I doing? I was hanging around in direct marketing, right? So the first clients we went to were clients who were doing direct marketing the traditional way. One of those clients happened to be McDonald's who was doing a program targeted towards mothers in the mail called McMoms. So we went to them and said, let's put McMoms online, right? We also basically said, hey, Kids like this interactivity. Let's try to do a partnership with Broadband. For this, for basically, Broadband will give us certain things, and we will basically sell Broadband CD-ROMs on trailiners. So the way we basically did it was we didn't sell them a new media. We basically sold them a better way to do their programs.
0: No, oh, that's to me that's fascinating. So. McMom's. Um, we, we did make, it, uh, we, we And i tell you the yes, how old and new
1: thinking can blow people's minds. Okay. And I wish I'd taken equity in this idea because <laughs> it was such a big idea that later on I realized how big it was. And it wasn't mine. Uh, and this is where uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Colvin, who was an agent at ICM, and married to our um, key, you know, sort of lawyer at the company called Carlo mm-hmm. And Bob was an agent at ICM. And he and me were talking and, you know, he basically said, I happen to have a lot of celebrities who want to play around with the online world, but don't know how, right? I had a client and now they are gone unfortunately, called Oldsmobile, which was in between uh, trying, a, trying to refurbish their cars and they needed to do something flashy and new and different. So what we did, we did the borrowed interest thing and we created a online celebrity show called Oldsmobile Celebrity Circle. And we bought from AOL, this was broken between ICM and. Leo Burnett and and Oldsmobile, we bought from, and I asked the question, what is prime time on AOL? And they said, what are you talking about? I said, what's prime time? They said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, on television, it's like 7 to 10 PM. So they said, what do you mean? So I said, okay, when do you have the largest number of people who dial in on these dial in things? So they said it's 8 PM. Um, in it in, 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 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. So I said, okay, could we buy the hour 8 to 9? And when everybody comes to the first, if you remember, you came to AOL on the first page, mm-hmm. I want something there that says, come to Oldsmobile Celebrity Circle. And we basically had, uh, I think it was um, Samuel Jackson at Pulp Fiction was big at that time, was our first guest. And basically Oldsmobile Celebrity Circle was people asking in chat questions to Samuel Jackson. He responding on chat. Mm-hmm. And around it, we basically had like little reviews and little pictures of Oldsmobile, right? And we ran that for two years. And it was so successful because, in effect, I owned an hour. I didn't own. The company owned an hour of everyone who was entering into AOL had to basically come through this Oldsmobile celebrity circle. And it was two-way. It was interactive, et cetera. After two years, AOL knew exactly what they had, and they basically said, Sure, you can renew but at 20 times the cost, and we walked away. Okay. But it's again one of these things that I always make sense is don't laugh at us old fogies. I wasn't old then. Okay. <laughs> but you are know, like, oh, yeah, this analog person asking questions like prime time and things. And my stuff was these people want to sell stuff. They've got a program, they want to sell stuff. What's prime time? What do you want to do? What do I want to do? And throughout this process, I understood technology, but I wasn't a technologist, right? But my partners and colleagues were. And so they kept me honest by saying, it can't, that can't be done, that's stupid. It, do, it doesn't work on 56K or 128K, so don't do that. And because we were doing our own creative, it wasn't that we were taking creative that was being developed for television and trying to port it over.
0: Amazing. One incredible coincidence is Bob Colvin knocked on my door in 1994 or five, he had been one, at one of our conferences called the Conference on Interactive Marketing and pitched me to become a partner with my company, which was called Interactive Marketing, Inc. And Bob and I met the Sequoia Capital guys who introduced us, asked us to go meet Jerry Yang and David Philo at Yahoo. And we became their interactive marketing agency of record. And we were their media sales rep for the first two years of their life. And Bob... Was a partner when we sold our company to SoftBank in 1996.
1: Perfect. So, yeah. so, so Bob helped you, and Bob helped me. Yeah,
0: and Carla too. Amazing. Yeah, yeah that's so great to hear. Um, so, who who was your mentor? Who who do you think helped you and guided you from this agency, you know, traditional agency world, where you you. We're given the opportunity to have the vision to move into this new arena. So, you
1: know, that there, there were two sets of mentors because after this, I did the next thing that eventually got me into the whole, whole publicist thing and Stockholm and Stockholm IP. The first set of mentors was the gentleman who was running the direct marketing group was a gentleman called Tom Collinger, who helped me. the interactive marketing group so he bought the idea he eventually became a professor at northwestern and now is an emeritus professor so he was basically one um i got support from leo bennett management there was a gentleman called jim geness another gentleman called rick Fisdale and bill lynch who were the three people who backed me and eventually they had to even though it was a private company they had to it was they backed me And then Adam and Eric Hennigan, who basically said, okay, you don't look as stupid as you look, because I didn't know know, much of these other things. But they said, you understand how to sell and you understand marketing and we can do the other things, not that they couldn't sell or market. So that was sort of the first set. And then uh, the second set, which was very important, which actually scaled this, is I then moved back from Giant Step back into 35 West Wacker, the Leo Burnett building because a gentleman by the name of Jack Clues, who is working in the process of taking the name off the door of the Leo Burnett Media Company and calling it Starcom. And he called me and he said, look, there are two things. Number one is I've used all of your thinking as to why we have to take the name off the door. Why that's important is when you join Leo Burnett, you hear a speech from the founder how you should not take the name off the door, not how not to take the name off the door, but you can take the name off the door whenever you want, but he would insist that he takes you take the name off the door when you care too much about money and all of these things. So it came down to basically being when you're trying to take the name off the door, you're trying to do suspicious things. And I had convinced them, we were not trying to do suspicious things. So we went from, and he invited me to do two things simultaneously, which is launch a media digital media operation for Starcom and be on the board of Starcom, even though my new outfit would be two people, right? And he and a lady by the name of Renetta McCann, who ran Starcom, which was 750 people at that time, uh, helped me a lot. Renetta would send me her business, and she treated me as an equal, though I was only two, and there were 700. Uh, so that was a very big thing. And I also, by the way, they were not mentors, but I learned and I benchmarked myself against three, four people in the outside world who I still remain connected to, and some of them will be on your show. Uh, you know, one of them was Jonathan Nelson of Organic. Mm-hmm. Another one mm-hmm. was GM O'Connell of Motor Media, yep, right? GM. And my old stuff is like, those people know. So I would visit them and say, what do you do? How do you do it? Right? And uh, and that worked out and that helped a lot. And then when Starcom succeeded and publicist bored us, Jack made me his digital person. And because he was very powerful, I became, a resource and asset to Maurice Levy at the Publicist Group. Uh, and, and then one of the big acquisitions they made was Digitas. And so David Kenny came over, and he became that person. Mm-hmm. But he and me became friends. And then he, when he left, right, I sort of stepped into what not his shoes, but doing what he was doing. Uh, and so that's how I became sort of a corporate player at Publicist to then start building the cases for the Digitas and Razorfish and Sapiens and epsilons.
0: And was the the giant step, was it really more uh, designing websites and strategies for, for, or or was was there media involved? Did you start to buy other websites like Yahoo and and Netscape, et cetera?
1: We basically had media. And one of the key things is, till I went back to Stockholm IP, for the first three years, all of the media was also being bought by giant step right? But then what began to happen is it. I began to understand first giant step decided that they wanted to uh, go much more deeper into competing with the science and violence of the world. If you remember those companies, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And, and my stuff was okay. I don't know how to do that, but I know how to do a little bit of online media and creative and stuff. So let me take that and go to Stockholm IP. So we, we started doing all the media went back into Stockholm, Right. And it was offline and online media. But Starcom IP was the online media operation. Starcom was the offline media operation. But we both reported, Renata and me both reported to Jack. And we we, we did the same thing, which is if Starcom clients needed digital, they would have to pay me. They wouldn't get it for free, right? I created a new culture, not a better culture, but a different culture than Starcom, And Renetta let me get all of her best talent. So the people who really built Starcom IP were people like Tim Harris and PJ McGregor and a whole bunch of other people, uh, Jeff Marshall, at which stage I would just hang around and they built the thing. And I just created sort of a little bit of credibility because by that time I had been in the business for 20 years and management listened to me. Like I said, I think we need to do this, but they actually built that company. And then from then on everybody else built everything and I was just like running around.
0: (laughs) So you, you obviously had a lot of experience, you know, I use the word a lot because you're talking about 94, 95, 96. It's three, three years. Then the industry conferences started to come about. Um, Tell us about the early industry events. Uh, I know you were a sought after speaker. Uh, And so tell us a little bit about that, those early days.
1: So, you know, there were all different kinds of things. There was basically, you know, ad tech and the original ad tech, there were a lot of events. And the events were threefold. The first were everybody was coming there to learn because they were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, Second is in some particular cases that and flow like in events, people were looking for their next job, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the, the third is they were also trying to build a case that this was going to be big, right? And there were only a handful of us who believed in what the next was going to be, who were not, not in the big companies. And there were only two or three of us, Doble, Juliet, Gray, myself, right? Uh, and, and then Martin Nissenholz at the New York Times, uh, who I think will also be on your show, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what happened is they mm-hmm. we were sought after, and I was sought after because A, wait, we need to get someone from the big companies. And here's this guy from the big companies. You need to pull it out. And then the other was, I was saying, this is really, really important because even everybody knew it was important. But if only the organics and agencies say it's important. remember, these are all independent. But then you have someone in a huge company like leo Benat, which at that time was the largest single agency in the United States, saying this is damn important, right? And Doing things and putting efforts behind it, it was one of the reasons I was popular. And also, I eventually learned how to speak without notes or videos so I could make up BS on the fly, which is always good. <laughs> we call it agile BS speaking.
0: <laughs> I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Duration Media, an ad tech software company that creates revenue generation solutions for publishers. Duration Media finds, mines and monetizes only highly viewable ad impressions, which finally makes a product that's good for publishers and advertisers. For more information, visit their website at durationmedia.net. And we're back with Rashad Tabakawala. You spent you know, the early days helping the agency um, understand that this was, well, it was really the beginning of digital transformation before anybody knew yeah. what those terms were, right? So- here you, you move now into the late 90s, the, you know, 2000. Um, you have this skill as a visionary strategist. How did you start to maneuver the agency to understand on a global basis what the importance of digital was going to be um, and how to express that to their clients?
1: So what happened is this is where people like Jack Clues became fundamentally important. So one of the things was Starcom and Starcom Media West Group, and then publicist media, were basically driving a majority of the profits of the publicist group. Right? A significant amount of the profits of the publicist group and the growth. Jack was on the board and Jack trusted me. And over the years, I would take Jack to all kinds of different companies. To introduce him to new concepts. We went and saw Atom Shockwave and we saw a whole bunch of other companies. Mm -hmm. And I became, besides a lot of other things, I became the person who said, Someone's gonna come and eat our lunch. I'm gonna introduce you to all of them. Okay. And and his old stuff was I'd go to Maurice, and Maurice said, This is too valuable. We don't want anyone to eat your lunch. But there was something else, which people forget. Maurice Levy began his career as a coder working in the IT department.
0: Oh, wow. didn't know that. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So he actually even entered publicis, He was in information technology. So he understood, right, uh, what was potentially likely to happen. But he trusted Jack because Jack drove all the money, right? And Jack trusted me. And so that's how we built the case that this was gonna be important. And as a result, when you go to a client and you come in and you've been doing this for five, seven years, but people of Maurice Levy and Jack Lew's stature says, what this guy is saying, we believe that is important. Very senior clients take you seriously. That's how it got done. And and I built cases of how industries, even to this day, how industries were being revolutionized when they were not paying attention. And if you remember, companies came and went really fast in those days. Now the industry that paid no attention to me were newspapers and magazines, right? And I would go and I would plead and beg with them. I said, you don't know what's coming. And they said you are, and they were at the height of making money, right? And I and then I used their cases with all real clients, what these, right? And I said, see what happened to them
0: yeah disinterme- disintermediation was a huge thing that the internet cost and newspapers are the you know the case study for that for sure um so talking about writing um you 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 when we first when we sat uh in february you had talked about uh we talked about your book um uh, restoring the soul of business. Is the first book, by the way, that I've read, uh, where I didn't read it in chronological order, and I think someone told me that I didn't have to, <laughs> to, yes. able, uh, to do that. Um, but you know, where did the inspiration come to write a book like this? Uh,
1: the 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 inspiration came from my original passion when I was growing up in India was to be a writer, but. My parents, basically, who gave me the love of reading and writing said, no, you can't be a writer for two reasons, Rashad. Number one, you have nothing to say. You've not lived, there's nothing worthwhile that you have to say, so what are you gonna write about? That was number one. Number two is you will not be able to support yourself as a writer and we have to educate you in a way you can support yourself. So I did the exact opposite extreme and got a degree in advanced mathematics, okay? But I always wanted to write. And then over the years, I started in uh, about 10 years ago, writing a blog. You know, I said, okay, I'll write a blog. And people said, you know, you should eventually write a book. And and then I started giving talks. And people said, what you say is very interesting. You should write a book. And then I began to think about a gentleman who I had dinner with who is retiring from being the vice chairman of Kraft long before I thought he should retire. And I said, why are you retiring now? And he said, I'll give you one piece of advice. Every career has a midnight hour. The smart people leave at 5 to 12. (laughs) Right? I thought about that. And so I went to Maurice and I said, I think I'm going to be at 10 to 12 soon. So I've got to leave before 5 to 12. And we had an argument he said, it's like not even 1130, but I said, whatever, right? And he says, what are you going to do? So I said, I want to write a book. He says, you could write a book while you're working here. What's your problem? I said, I want to write a real book. I want to do research. I want to spend time. I said, this job is 24 seven. So, so, and I had therefore the original interest. I had the blog that says people were interested. And then I was giving talks. People said, what you are saying, nobody says, or you're saying it in a way that is easy to understand and use versus a bunch of gobbledygook. So that's how I wrote the book. But even in writing the book, I did a lot of research. And the research was that average nonfiction business books do not sell. And so I said, why don't they sell? Number one, the book should have only been one chapter long. Most nonfiction business books are the same chapter repeated 12 times. That's the reason I've written 12 different books which you can read in any order, right? Which is number Mm -hmm. one. But it's not a book of essays because there's a connecting spine called the story and the spreadsheet, which is you've got to balance the left and the right brain. The second was most business books are filled with outdated case studies. I have no case studies. I have stories and my stories are dated from 1950 to now. So it doesn't date. And then the third one is most books are written for the writer and not for the reader. So I went around for two years asking, what should I write about? What questions do you want answered? So I wrote for the reader. And what the reader wanted was, how do I manage change so it sucks less? How do I lead with soul? Things like that. So I decided to write about that. And then I said, hey, we're living in a modern age where nobody listens to a compact disc from the first song to the end. Most people don't even know what a compact disc is. So I'm gonna create a Spotify playlist. You can listen to it and arrange it in any order. And if you want, you can only listen to one song. And that's how the book came to be.
0: So which of your readers said that they wanted to learn about the turd on the table, which was chapter four?
1: The turd on the table, which (laughs) is an actual experience that happened uh, Mm. about over a decade ago was when um, Shantuna Narayan, then and currently the CEO of Adobe, came to us at Publicis to talk about working together. And I asked a very simple question Shantanu, I think we need to talk about the turd on the table, which is the elephant in the room or the fact that we're all looking around, looking at something brown and moist and thinking it's a brownie when it's a piece of shit. He says, what might that be? And I said, you've just bought a couple of agencies and you're coming here to talk about partnering with agencies. Explain to me how sad this makes. And he sat down and he explained why he was doing what he wanted to do, was to learn more about our agencies work but he wanted to partner with the big agencies that's where the thing came out, the turd on the table. Let's not talk about, you know, and people never address the real issues in the room. So the turd on the table is not only to address the real issues in the room, but to speak inconvenient truths to management. And that by the way, is the favorite chapter of Jack Clues because he, when I was there, he didn't call me the chief turd, thank God, but he called me the chief provocator, right? So my job was to challenge the status quo, including challenge him and his thinking and our own thinking. And that's what that was about.
0: What, what was the the thought? I forgot exactly how you said it was that a lot of people towards the end of their career don't don't think five years ahead. I, yeah I, I apologize for not remembering so, exactly what you said, but what was that?
1: So the, the, the key is this we don't think ahead when it comes to ourselves, right? We think we will live forever. We'll always be wanted by everybody all the time, without knowing that like any good vegetable, we actually don't remain fresh beyond a sell by date. And this has got nothing to do with age or anything else, right? There comes a time when it's time for you to move on. Most people a don't do that and they don't plan for that. And if you have been very successful, you need to think about that transition three, four, five years ahead. Otherwise it comes upon you in three horrible ways. One way it comes upon you is you get terminated without knowing what the hell happened. Second is you become increasingly like an old uncle or an old aunt shrieking in the corner that no one pays attention to, right? Or the third is you just lose joy at your work. And my basic belief was, what's, what's next? If I'm helping our clients figure out what's next, what's next, right? And for me, what I began to realize, looking at what I was doing, was I liked helping people think, see, and feel differently about how to grow themselves, their teams, and their company. And I said, how could I do that when I'm not doing it here? But how could I do it in such a way I'm not competing with what I'm leaving? Right. And so I worked elegantly because I continue to be very close to publicists. I, you know, help. Lead all the executive training. I run a podcast. I talk to them whenever they want. I don't do business pitches. I don't handle clients. I'll talk to a client. I don't do anything. I have no PL, no bosses, no responsibility. That way, but I'm close to them. But I'm doing the stuff that I love doing for this part of my career. And because I left before I had like passed my sell by date as best as I could, <laughs> they like me and I like them, right? And my whole stuff is if you get very powerful or you get very good or you get very successful or some combination of those, remember every phase has a midnight hour leave at five to 12.
0: So was that part of the inspiration also to start to publish this newsletter that that I get to read every Sunday?
1: Yes. So what basically happened is, fortunately, because of the support of you and a lot of other people, the book has done well. But however, I would love people to buy more and more books by publisher reminds me sell more books, which is great.
0: Uh, but, buy his book, uh, buy his book,
1: right, but I and just put in my name on Amazon, and you get it or whatever thing. But the, the key is, I think, what I began to realize was one of the things I tell people is, I is I need to keep learning and learning new things. And I was seeing lots of people use this thing called Substack. So I said like, I better learn what Substack is, right? That's number one. Number two, I go to many of our clients or what were my clients, but I tell everybody who I speak to, please, please, please do not be dependent on your future on the platforms, okay? Sooner or later, they're gonna come and disrupt you. They're not coming to disrupt any goddamn agency. We're goddamn valueless, right? They're going to come, the only way they're going to grow is they're going to eventually disrupt you. I'm not saying they're bad people, they're good people. But their economic interests eventually will be to squeeze every dollar out of you. And therefore, your supply chain, which everyone now is being very clear about, their supply chain they're thinking about because of COVID-19, mm-hmm. is not just a supply chain of ingredients and you know how you ship things. One of your biggest supply chains is you connecting to your end customer consumer person do not have that only go through amazon google facebook you will die right and i then started running math to show how when i post a message on these platforms how few people see it i didn't know i so just because i've got like 5000 friends on facebook i know exactly what to do to dial up my facebook When I say stupid things it goes up but if I say something meaningful it goes down right because it doesn't enrage people and who reads and who does anything and I said therefore I have to change myself and what I create to satisfy these people and I become someone different than myself no so I said I want to have a direct relationship with customers and Substack lets you do that or not customers with America's readers and very quickly I launched this thing called a newsletter and A, because I love writing, B, because I decided if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it well, right? I have in now 16 weeks of writing, so I just issued number 16. I went from no readers, it's free, so it's completely free, but, you know, still 10 minutes of people's time. I went from no readers or no subscribers to today I'll probably, you know, across 4,300, so 4,300, 16 weeks later. And now I'm adding about 50 to 100 every day or two, right? Uh And what's particularly interesting is not just that, they're communicating with me, I'm now reaching CEOs of companies and students all over the world, everybody I want, but they're passing it along. So my most recent post called A River of Change, which I wrote yesterday Mm -hmm. on Sunday, on Monday, even though I only have quote unquote 4,000. 200 readers, right? And right now, as of this morning, I have a 55% open rate, which is very high, right? But I have 10,000 views because people are passing it Mm -hmm. across organizations. And so in effect, I did this for two reasons, to learn a new technology and to prove to everybody that if a starving author is finding new ways to connect and not depending only on the platforms why aren't you? And it's so powerful. The CEOs of companies basically turn to their CMOs and say, if this fool does it, why can't
0: <laughs> you do it? Yeah, well, that's always been my career. You know, people say if Vatkin can do it, we certainly <laughs> can do it. So, But I, I read it this, this Sunday as I do every Sunday. And uh, so I made a note here is that you talk about three connected a- uh, ages and yes. what we've done in this uh, almost hour that uh, I'm sad to say is gonna end soon. Um, we talked about the first connected age, right? In right. 1993, 94, um, where we got connected to information and transaction. So what yes. what are the other two? And then when you finish with that, maybe you can uh, help our listeners enjoy the vision of where you think uh, social and digital media sure. are going in the future.
1: So the, the first connected age, as you say, was Built around the world wide web. And obviously, online was existing before, et cetera. So, very quickly, it was basically connect to transact and connect to inform. So, think Google, Amazon in the United States, right, as examples. 2007 was the second connected age where we were connected to everybody because of social media. And we were connected all the time because of smartphones. And because of that, you had companies like Uber and Dollar Shave Club and others coming. We are now entering the third connected age or entered the third connected age where data is connected to data, which is machine learning and AI. There are new ways of connecting like voice, much faster ways of connecting like 5G, and we're connected to the God in the sky, which is cloud-based computing. And that is going to be building on the first and second, second connected ages, dramatic. I basically make a case that one third of the United States economy is going to be disrupted dramatically in the next five years. That one-third happens to be healthcare, finance, and education, which is 33%. Because in COVID-19, plus because of what those technologies are going to do, combined with a new generation of people, which is you and I figured out this thing was existing. Our kids, or not necessarily, most kids basically have grown up only with this. So the, their language, their beliefs, and their thoughts are extremely different. And so you combine that with this new technology and we're gonna see massive new industries being formed. Uh, And you begin to see the valuation of, even in the automobile industry, the valuation of a Tesla or a NIO, right? Uh, Versus the valuation of most other companies uh, or anything of the sort. And so what basically I'm explaining to people is, if you didn't take attention to the first connected age or the second connected age, which by the way, the five most valuable companies happen to be leaders in those ages, and we're entering the third connected age, and you aren't paying attention right now, you're not only way past your sell by date, you actually might be a dead person, okay? And and so to a great extent, in trying to explain things in English, using human terms, linking it to successful companies, convinces business people, women and men that, we are about to enter two amazing eras. An amazing era of change, which will both have winners and losers, but I also believe an amazing era of magic. So I truly believe that every 20 years, if you look back, you look back 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, however challenging the times might be, it's far better as humanity to be alive now than 20 years ago, 40 years, and 60 years ago. Yes, there are winners and losers, right? But humanity as a whole is better off and will be better off in the future. And so I try to explain to people that you should not be either Pollyannish, the technology is good, or you should basically be dystopian, that the world is, um, you know, everyone's going to be, it's going to be unequal, we're all going to be like hacked and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think what we need to be is pragmatically enthusiastic, right? And I'm very pragmatically enthusiastic about the future, but in order to do so, and this is the only, I will leave with these three quick pieces of advice, right? Which is, in order to basically really thrive, I ask people to do what I do. I'm not saying I'm necessarily successful, but I said, here's what I do. Number one is I spend an hour learning things every day. If you don't learn, you become obsolete. That's number one. And in my, you know, in my, at rishad.substack.com, I share all the different ways you can learn and almost everything is for free. So that's number one. Number two is build a case for the exact opposite of what you believe. So if you believe in something, build a case. And that's the way you offset any polarization of media and bad stuff, et cetera. And the third one, which is the hardest to do, which is why I'm doing Substack and doing a whole bunch of stuff, is just do, right? At some particular stage, you've got to get your hands dirty. In this new world, you just got to think about it. You got to also do.
0: Remarkable. Uh, it's hard to believe that uh we've spent an hour together um i do i do have one last question sure. for you though um a, lo- a lot of people are concerned about social media and uh the control they have and what they know about what people do um do you share that that same fear as to what uh facebook and twitter and other platforms uh Uh, are doing and how that's going to affect the future as well?
1: Yeah, so I've basically been one of the only people who's gone on record for the last two years calling out Facebook, right? Go back in the last two years. There's not a single person in the advertising industry who goes on record. Uh, I've, for the last two years, since Cambridge Analytica, I've questioned a whole bunch of stuff about the Facebook company primarily, okay? And I basically believe that, and I tell our clients that they have to recognize that they are funding, because they have to, because they have to sell products. They are funding what I basically believe is the weaponization of society. If you basically see the movie Social Dilemma, you will basically mm-hmm. hear statistics that are very scary. Mm-hmm. If you look at everybody who's in Silicon Valley, how they keep their kids off social media, it'll give you an interesting thing. Ask Mark Zuckerberg if his young daughters actually are on Facebook or Instagram or any of these things, or if his nieces and nephews are. They aren't, right? So you know, in, in effect, what basically begins to happen is we have confused power and money with doing the right thing. And my basic belief is you're only powerful when you can walk away from money and do the right thing. And I can tell you that the marketers of America are very strong. And the marketers of America have been woken up because of Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. because the people in their companies have woken them up to what is going on. There are four simple things that have to basically be done in the next three to five years. This is not like a one month fight or a three month fight. All the major marketers utilizing the ANA or everything else should put as much pressure to get transparency about the way their data is used and the algorithms. Number two, they should be, it's very simple to, you know, I, I know how to change the goddamn algorithms, right? Eliminate the share button and do a few things and you'll be fine. But guess what? Your dollars will fall. So what, okay, in the long run? So that that's happens to be one. The second, so they can pressurize. Second is they work together to develop, like I have with Substack, a first party relationship with the end customers. Mm -hmm. And part of that is if they need to basically get justice department, okay, work together to share information so they can work together with complementary products and services. So they aren't as reliant. Third is because of supply chains, you sometimes fund less than practical supply chains, fund as many new companies as you possibly can, right? put as much money as you can in the TikToks and the snaps and the Pinterest and everything else. Because the more you have that, you go back to the days when you basically could have ABC versus CBS versus NBC, Hearst versus whatever. The third is use all your lobbying might as you possibly can for a breakup of these companies. That'll keep them you know, straight, right? And fourth is pay real, real attention. They're coming after your business what are your strategic and data optionalities? Make this a board level issue at every board meeting. If you do that for the next three to five years, marketers will be better off. These companies will continue to succeed. They're not bad companies, but it's time for marketers and for people to grab back our futures.
0: Well, I think we should leave it at that. Uh, it has been a great hour, Rashad. Thank you. It's been uh, wonderful hanging out with an OG. Uh, you are an original gangster for sure uh not an old know, guy but
1: <laughs> well but, but we're, we're we're still here and we're still kicking and uh, you know i this i'm drinking you know water versus vodka but now as it gets a little later today i will move into my beer which as yeah. you know we love doing and then hopefully we will have a beer soon in person in the next 6 to 8 months once these times pass
0: i look forward to that uh, you know the travel again and uh when this series is over and the, we've got 16 people already scheduled, um, hopefully we'll be able to travel have a and we get a gathering together. And uh, I'm sure as this progresses, we'll have even more, you know, to tell those stories. Um, Perfect. But thank th- you very much. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by Duration Media. For more information on the company and its revenue generation ad tech, please visit their website at durationmedia.net. Like and follow this podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Net OGs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your audio. So you'll never miss a single episode. Stay tuned for more interviews with Net OGs from companies such as DoubleClick, New York Times, Motive Media, 24-7 Media, Yahoo, NFL, Superbowl.com, and many, many more. To see the full list and learn more about the Net OGs, visit our website at thenetogs.com.